and turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. That's our scripture reading, the text on which this morning's teaching is going to be based. You can find it on page 1,128 of the Bible uh, that's on the rack in front of you if you don't have a Bible that's with you. Um, we read some of these verses just a minute ago when we heard God, God's assurance of pardon uh, for sin. But let's read all of them now, verses 4 uh, through 9. It comes right behind uh, the first three verses that um, Kevin taught on last week, which is the introductory greeting of Paul to the church in Corinth. We're going to be studying over the next a couple of weeks the first two chapters, first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. And we see that Paul starts off with his customary greeting, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 4 through 9, this expression of thanksgiving for what God is doing at the church in Corinth. So let's read this, because this is God's word. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your faithfulness to us expressed through Jesus. We thank you that you speak to us in your word, and we pray that as we come to study it this morning, you would be with each of us. Lord, there is a very real opportunity for us to fall to one of two extremes, and that's to be so distracted by the things that are going on in our lives that we pay no attention to what you're saying to us through the word, through this word. And yet, Lord, the other extreme is that we just try to block everything out that's going on in our lives. Try to pretend as if those things don't exist and seek to find in your word this experience that is separate from what's happening in our lives. Lord, keep us from each of those extremes. Help us instead to take the things that are going on in our lives and filter them through your word so that we can see how what you say to us applies to us. I pray that you would do it by the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, because I am not capable of doing that through my words. I pray that you would take away all of those things which are not helpful to those that listen and apply perfectly those things that are. For we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I, th I think we're still close enough to the beginning of the year to, to do an exercise like this. I don't know if you've been thinking sometimes the beginning of the year is a good time to take stock of what's going on in your life, but I want you to think for a moment of something in your life, perhaps as you look at 2016, that you want to see changed. Something in your life that, that, needs, to be, that needs to be changed. Right? Something that isn't helpful. I'm not talking about something, something that someone else needs to change. <laughs> I'm talking about something that, that, that you need to change. Something, something in your life that you know is not helpful. That, for which you're responsible. Now what would it be? A bad habit of, of some kind, perhaps? A, a particular emotional pattern? A a destructive relationship, perhaps? Right? Behavior that you know to be wrong? What would it be? And don't tell me that you can't think of anything. Right? There is something, many things, if you're probably honest. Now, take that thing and, if, and, if, and, and think, of if someone were to confront you about that particular area, either at your request, because you go to them seeking help, hey, can you help me with this, or not solicited, but out of love, comes to you and says, hey, I noticed this in your life. How can I help you? Right? If they were to do that, how would you want them to do that? 
How would they do that? How would they do that in a way that would be helpful? Now, there's a, there's a comedy skit that was done um, a number of years ago, back in 2001. It originally was broadcast on the, the, seri- the Mad TV series that was on. Um, and it's a comedy skit with Bob Newhart. And he's playing a psychiatrist. Dr. Switzer is his name. It's just a short little skit. But it's, it's fitting because Bob Newhart, early in his TV career, played a, a psychologist. And so, um, so Bob Newhart is Dr. Switzer. And this is something that it makes the rounds now all the time on the Internet, particularly among counselors and psychologists and stuff. Um, so Dr. Switzer is in his office, and in comes this woman named Catherine. And Catherine is seeking his help because she has been paralyzed, struggling in her life with a fear of being buried alive in a box. Claustrophobia, but specifically being buried alive in a box. And he says, this is very easy, so this is just going to take five minutes. All of my counseling sessions do. Just, it's just going to take five minutes. And she thinks this is a little bit too good to be true, but she says, okay, all right, that's, that's, that's fine. She said, and she says, okay, what, what do you, what do you, what's your fear? That's what he says to her. He says, well, it's being buried alive in a box. I said, okay. He said, I'm going to give you two words. Two words that I want you to now take with you and put into practice, and it will solve all of your issues. She said, okay. All right, should I write them down? He said, well, you can if you want, but it's just two words. We find most people are able to remember them easily enough. She says, okay, I'm ready. Two words. What are they? And she said, okay, here, he says, okay, here are the two words. Stop it. <laughs> and she looks at him and says, what? That's it. Two words. Stop it. And he goes on, and it's much funnier because he's Bob Newhart, and so I won't attempt to do it. But, but, but that's the essence of his, of his advice, is just stop it. Now, if you think about it in light of, of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians, and Kevin introduced us to, to the situation a little bit, but, but Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians here that is one of confrontation, that is one of correction. And frankly, the temptation would be Right? When you consider what some of the issues were that were going on in this church, bickering among themselves, they were suing each other. Right? Favoritism, one party thinking that they were better than another party within the church, incest, sexual immorality. I mean, there's all kinds of... They, they, were, they were abusing the widows. They were misapplying the principles of worship in the church. All kinds of things. And you think if there was ever a temptation for Paul to just kind of skip over, you know, from the, from the initial greeting, which you got to do, I'm Paul, you're the church in Corinth, skip over to, like, the correction and just say, look, would you just grow up and stop it? It would be here. But what's interesting is he doesn't, that's not, that's not what he does. I mean, he certainly gets to the, to the correction, and he'll do it in a much more helpful way than stop it, but he doesn't even start there. That's not even where he starts. That's what I think is so remarkable about this section that we just read from verses 4 to 9, the fact that it's there at all, right? Because, I mean, this Thanksgiving section is standard in all of Paul's letters, but but if there was ever a case to just skip it, I think it would have been now. But he doesn't. Because, because, Because this section, what he says here in what we just read, is so foundational for the confrontation of sin in our lives the confrontation of sin in the lives of the Corinthians, certainly, but the confrontation of sin in our own lives. Because what Paul is doing here is he's, he's, he's laying out a framework of what it means to be a Christian. That the confrontation of sin in the life of a Christian. Now, for a Christian, we'll come back to that in a minute, it's important. But the confrontation of sin in the life of a Christian begins with a reminder of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the first place. Not just a reminder of what the Christian rules are. Let me just remind you what the Christian ethic is. No, that's not what he's saying. It's not a reminder of what the Christian ethic is, primarily. It's a reminder of what the Christian identity is, who you are in Jesus. That's what Paul is telling. That's where he's starting. This is who you are as a follower of Jesus. And what this means 
is that if you are here this morning, if you're a Christian, then here is the starting point for how you would confront sin in your own life. Here are the foundational truths about your identity that are essential for you to understand and ground yourself in and root yourself in before you go any further in dealing with the areas of your life that you know you need to change. It's also, I should note, the model that you would use to confront sin and struggles in the lives of other people. Whether they're people that come to you, like Catherine comes to a Dr. Switzer and asks for help, whether they come to you, or whether out of love you go to someone else and confront them. This, too, is the model for how you would do that. This is the foundation where you would start. Now, two, two caveats, two points of clarification, though, that are important, kind of before you dive in and just kind of run with this. Right? These verses are foundational to addressing sin, but they are not complete. In other words, they are not without a broader context that's important to understand. So, for example, caveat number one. These verses are speaking, they are presuming that the audience, the person that they're speaking to, is a Christian. Consider the context. Paul's writing, Kevin showed us this last week in verse two, he's writing to to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. To those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that means, for you, is that if you're going to directly apply these verses to yourself and to your life. It presumes that you've come to the place of understanding that, first of all, your primary need, your your most important need, is not whatever issue it is that you're struggling with, but it is the main issue that you are out of relationship with God and that you are seeking to follow Jesus because it is through Jesus that that relationship is reestablished and made right. Now, but that does not mean that if you're not a Christian, if you're here trying to figure that out, if you can't say with certainty that you are one of the sanctified in Christ Jesus, that you, that you may not in your own life have, have, have come to the point yet where you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not mean that there isn't something here for you. Actually, just the opposite. Right? Because what you have here and what Paul is doing is something that makes Christianity absolutely unique. Absolutely unique. Right? This is how he confronts problems. This is how he confronts the need for change. He starts with a foundation that is very different than the way that the world would start. It's not not a starting point that says, okay, this is what you need to change, here's the ethic. It's a starting point that says, no, this is the identity. And so if if you're not a Christian and you're looking at this, I want you to, to think as we talk about it this morning, consider how what Paul is doing here, how it creates a completely different foundation for change for considering how to address areas of struggle in in, in one's life. That's caveat number one. It's addressed to Christians. It's important to understand. Now, caveat number two. These verses presume that there is more discussion, more application to follow, to come. In other words, you don't just, Paul doesn't just stop 1 Corinthians at verse 9. We're going to stop this morning at verse 9, but Paul doesn't. He will keep going, and that's important because you don't just kind of take these verses and lay them on somebody and say, okay, feel better now? It's foundation. You can't ignore these verses. That's the point of what I was just saying, but neither can can you avoid the hard work of taking these foundational truths and then working them into your own life. Or working them, helping someone work these truths into the, the practical details, the real issues and the real struggles of what someone is going to. How do they apply to this and to this and to this? And that's what Paul will continue to do through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'll make some references of, of application and, and illustration today, but by and large, we won't, we, won't do, we won't do that in a detailed form today. Now, as we keep going through the next couple of weeks and we start looking at some of the, the problems that Paul addresses early on, we'll have opportunity to start doing that. 
But that's important to see. This is, these verses are not without a larger context, and it's important to and understand that. So, with those caveats in mind, let's, let's just look at a few of the things that Paul is saying here and, and, and examine them a little bit more because I want to highlight at least four, four, four things that, that Paul is saying as the foundation for confronting sin in, 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 in one's life, that form the foundation for, for seeking change in the, in the life of a Christian. And this isn't exhaustive, and they, I mean, I have to confess, I don't think they perfectly actually kind of tie together and they might overlap at certain points but as you kind of read through there's certain things that jump out at you these are four that jumped out to me and I think they're helpful all right first thing first thing to realize and as a foundation for confronting sin is that is that Paul is expressing appreciation verse four look at verse four I always thank God for you he's he's saying that they're appreciated I always thank God of you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Now, it's typical, as I was saying a moment ago, it's typical for Paul in his letters to, to, to follow a greeting, like verses 1 through 3, with an expression of thanksgiving. He says, you know, I'm really thankful for you. And that's nice. But I want to note two things about, about this here. First, note the ground of the gratitude. Right? He's not saying, I thank God for you because specifically of what you've done. He says, he says, I'm thankful for you because of, the, because of his grace. I thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Right? Because of, literally, on the, on the ground of, this is the reason for my thanksgiving. And you might say, okay, well, how is that really honoring then to the Corinthians who are receiving that? How do they, they're not, Paul's not thanking them for them. No, actually, he's not. He's thanking them for what God has done in them. But if you've ever been in a situation like that where someone will come to you and say something, there is something that's actually deeply honoring when someone approaches you that way. So I just want to thank God. This is what Paul's saying. I just want to thank God for what I see him doing in your life. I want to thank God. I thank God when I look at you for what God has done. There's a difference. It roots it in the right thing. It grounds it in the right thing. But you see, but you see it's, deep, it's deeply honoring. He's saying that they're appreciated. Now, the other thing to note kind of from this is, note the irony, <laughs> right? I, I, I alluded to this a minute ago, but the irony of the fact that he is giving thanks to God for what he has done in the lives of the Corinthians. He's writing, he's writing the thanksgiving that he expresses in other letters to churches or to individuals where there might be less problems going on, it might be a little, might be a little bit easier to understand. But these Corinthians are pretty messed up people, right? Paul is thankful for them? Yeah. And I, and I don't think that he's being sarcastic here. I think he's honestly, absolutely being absolutely sincere. And he's looking at them and he's saying, I see reason because of what Jesus Christ has done to be thankful for his work among you. Right, so how does this, how does this help us then? Right? Paul starts with gratitude. Not false gratitude, sincere gratitude. But genuine because he sees the work of God in their lives. So when you see yourself when we consider confronting others, when you see yourself with an opportunity to go before others, start with a sincere thank you for what you see God doing in their lives. Right? And, and when we confront sin in our own lives, but the same thing. Right? Start with a sincere thank you to God for the grace that he has shown to you in Jesus Christ. Very specifically, at the very least, you can come to him and thank you for the grace of being made aware of the issue that you may be struggling with, the sin that may be in your life, the, the battle that you're facing. Thank him for the awareness of it because it is his grace that shows it to you. Right? That's where you start. 
That's, that's the first foundation for confronting sin that Paul uses here is to express appreciation and for us to realize that we are appreciated for who we are in Christ. Now, second, realize that we are gifted, enriched, as it says here. Look at verse 5. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. The gift that Paul's talking about here is it's not, it's not a specific power of the Holy Spirit. The, the sense here, which this word can be used to convey, is one of just, it's the blessing of God. It's the blessing of God that's poured out on the, on the people of God. And he's saying, this is interesting, the two things that he notes as specific blessings, and there would have been others, but the two things that he points out here are what? In all your speaking and in all your knowledge. You've been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Now, Paul is commenting, ironically, on the very gifts that he will then confront as being abused very shortly. Because these very gifts, the, the, the power of eloquence and the draw and the, and the power of knowledge was something that was highly valued in Greek culture and it was something that was particularly abused in Corinth. Think of it rightly, this idea of knowledge, of right understanding, is something that rightly used, rightly understood, leads to wisdom, it leads to prudence, to, to wise decision-making, but wrongly used, this concept of knowledge, of understanding, leads to what? To arrogance, to self-focus. And Paul will confront those things, but he starts by coming to them and saying, look, I want you to know that the, that, that the, that the abuse of those gifts does not in, in any way diminish the beauty of them. The fact that you have been given gifts by God. And so he's pointing that, he's pointing that out to them. And he's pointing out that actually the giving of these gifts, the blessing of God, in it is, a, is a confirmation. That's what he says. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. This is a word that used in other places in the ancient world has a legal understanding to it. It's, it's a guarantee. And Paul's saying that what I see in God giving you these, these gifts, these blessings, is a guarantee, it's an evidence, it's a confirmation that he is at work in your, in your lives. Now, do you see how this might be a helpful reminder right, for, for confronting sin? Paul is saying that the blessing of God, though it's obscured by the way that you abuse it, the blessing of God is still there. Look at what he's given you. So, so, so Paul's foundation for Christian identity that enables us to confront sin what he's saying to the Corinthians and what, and, what, and what he's saying to us is, number one, that you're appreciated, and number two, that you're, you're gifted, you're enriched. But number three, you're guaranteed. Start back at verse 7, and let's read through the beginning of verse 8. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end. Right, now, we just said that the gifts, the blessing of God, are a guarantee of something that has happened in the past. They're a confirmation, which is why that word confirmation is used, because, it's, because in that sense, it's a, it's a demonstration of what has happened. Now here, Paul is saying that something else is guaranteed, something that is in the future, something that will come, and that is the, the, that you will be kept to the end. Jesus, Jesus is going to return, he says. Here's something that's going, to, that's going to happen as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus to be revealed. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is going to return, and Paul is saying that they should eagerly wait for it. Now, that's an interesting thing to say to someone who is struggling with sin, isn't it? 
wait for it. Because that's not how we often use the return of Jesus to someone who is struggling with sin. Usually we use it as what? A threat. What? Jesus is coming back. You know, he's going to be back and he knows. Better watch out. Better not pout. He's coming to town. See, that's how we typically think of it. Right? But, that's, but for all of their struggle, right? And, and for, someone who, for someone who isn't a Christian, right, the, there is a big warning that's always contained in, in, the, in the, the promised return of Jesus, wherever it's told in Scripture. He is, a, he is the judge. He does not take sin lightly. But for all their struggle, Paul, remember, is writing to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those who belong to Jesus. And what he's saying is that for them, even in the midst of their struggle, they should be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons probably, but at the very least, because that is the moment when their struggle will end. <laughs> when the battle with sin will be over because he's going to be back and it's going to be done. Have you ever struggled with some kind of uh, addiction? Maybe it's, maybe it's to something, something big, something to which we normally kind of connect the word addiction, drugs or alcohol or pornography or something like that. Maybe it's just something small, and the culture doesn't usually use the word addiction, but it's the same thing. It's paralyzing. It's something that you can't shake, something that you keep coming back to, and you try and you try, but you can't come, you can, and you wish that it would just, you wish it would just be over because you fight and you fail and you know it's sin and you, and, 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 and you change and you take a step but then you go forward and you come back and, and you just wish, I just wish it could just be done. The, 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 the temptation that everything associated would just be gone. Now that happens to some. There are some people who, who, who come to know Jesus, who become a Christian, who follow him and God removes a particular area of sin and struggle in, in, in their life and just takes it away, just gone. But that doesn't happen to everyone. I would probably argue that doesn't happen to most. And, and there's a temptation among those to whom it does happen, or, or among those who think that it should happen in every case, to look at someone who continues to struggle with something that is paralyzing in their lives and say, and say you just don't have enough faith. That's the problem. You just don't have enough faith. But I want you to see, there is absolutely no guarantee in Scripture whatsoever that you will be free of struggle against sin in your life as long as you live. There's no guarantee of that. But there is a guarantee. Do you see? There is a guarantee. Verse 8. He will keep you strong to the end. That's the guarantee. He will keep you. That's the same word we were just looking at in verse 6. It's translated there, confirmed. It's here, it's here translated, he will keep you. It's the, same, it's the guarantee that this, will, that this will happen. It's not a guarantee. See, a lot of times we think of, we think of it like this. Okay, you know, we become a Christian, we start following Jesus, and maybe there's a little, there's a grace period. There's a warranty that kind of goes along with maybe the first 24 months or 50,000 miles or whatever, you know, of like the, of, of the Christian life. And so God will keep you maybe for the first couple years and then after you, you either have worked it out on your own or you bear the cost for it from, them, from then forward. But that's not. It's not a trial period. He's not going to keep you just for the first. For he will keep you, it says, to the end. All the way. Now what a way to ground your confrontation of sin 
look, this is what Paul's saying. Look, Jesus is coming. He's coming back. The struggle that he is asking you to walk through is designed for you to strengthen your faith, and he has promised to walk with you through it, to give you the power to endure, to be with you until, until the end, and at that moment it will be gone forever. Right? So, so Paul's foundation for addressing sin in the life of, of a Christian. Right? He expresses appreciation. He tells them that they are enriched. He tells them that they are guaranteed. And then fourth, he tells them that they're blameless. Start again at the beginning of verse 8, and let's read to the end of verse 9. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. All right, so on that day, the day when he's coming, the day for which the struggling sinner is eagerly waiting, the day unto which he says that he is going to keep you, on that day, he says, when you stand before Jesus, you will be found blameless. Now, what does that mean? It means what it says, without blame. No condemnation. Now, it doesn't mean, like we were just saying, that you will have by that point worked out all of the air, all the struggles, everything, all, and, you, and, you, and you won't have up to that moment any sin in your life. No, it's not what it means. But what it means is that when you stand before the Lord Jesus, there will be absolutely no legal ground whatsoever for anyone to be able to bring prosecution against you because the blame will have been taken away. Now, some would, would look at this and they kind of say, that's, that's too good to be true. And, 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 and there is a sense in which that is exactly what we're meant to feel. Consider the situation of the Corinthians. I mean, all you have to do is know a little bit about what, what they've done. I mean, I've, I've given you just kind of the quick list, but, it, you know, just a little bit of who they are. You mean for the Corinthians? How could that be true? That's very much the point that we're meant to, to step back and say in our own lives. We're meant to look at our own lives and say very much the same thing. That is amazing because that's what this is. This is the amazing grace of God that would make us blameless despite the blame that we would rightly have. But there, there might be others who would look at it and say, like, okay, some would struggle with, can this really be true? Others would struggle, can the, is this really fair? Right? Because, I mean, in other words, if the Corinthians have done all these things, I mean, how, how can God just kind of, just, just like that, just say, forget it? And how can he say that? Can he really do that? Well, yes and no. Yes, the legal standing of blamelessness is exactly what Paul is asserting. He's, he's absolutely claiming that, that they are forgiven. All the things they've done, all of it, everything that they're going to do, all the, all the lying, all the fighting, all the sexual immorality, all the abuse, all of it is forgiven, blameless, yes. But just like that, just like that, as if like you do this, like no. No, not just, not just like that. Verse 9, look at verse 9. Verse 9 is a very easy verse to just kind of lift out of context because it's beautiful, it's great. I mean, it goes really nicely on an index card to keep in your wallet or put on your bathroom mirror or your refrigerator or something like that. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. And that's true, it is. It's a beautiful verse. But if you just pull verse 9 out of context, you, you realize you miss what it's, what it's saying. Verse 9 is there to give evidence to verse 8. How can you be blameless? Because God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. This is how it can be true. This is too good to be true. 
<laughs> this, is how it can be, this is how it can be true. It's true because it's not based ultimately on our faithfulness to God's call. The blamelessness is based on God's faithfulness to God's call. Right? God is faithful to his call. Our blamelessness doesn't depend on how faithful we are to his call. It depends on how faithful he is to his call. That's how he's able to keep us to the end. That's how he's able to declare us to be, to be blameless. Now, faith, faithful to what, specifically? God is faithful, but specifically to what? Well, he says, it says he's called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's faithful to the call that he's made on the basis of the fellowship, it says in verse 9, that we have with his son, Jesus Christ. The fellowship, the unity, the, the communion. Now, one of the commentators I was reading points out that there's a sense in which this, this word here, which is a Greek word that you might have heard before, koinonia, it means fellowship or sometimes translated community, but there's a sense in which this word here carries the, carries the connotation of being a shareholder. Now, this, I, having worked in the business world for a number of years and in jobs that related to the, the stock market, like, this was intriguing to me. What's that mean? It doesn't mean a stockholder in the sense that you make an investment in Jesus. It doesn't, make, it, it doesn't mean a stockholder in the sense that you have some sort of voting right in what happens with Jesus, that you, know, you get to kind of cast your vote for how things go. But it does mean, in a, in a very real way, that when we are in fellowship with Jesus, we are an obligated beneficiary of Jesus' labor. You see what that means? It means that when the dividends are paid because of the profits that are generated by the work of Jesus, it means that you have a legal right to your share. And the dividend that God pays is blamelessness. Perfection, righteousness, and, and do, you see, do you see how that, that how, what makes that true? Not the work of the Corinthians. It's not the work of the Corinthians that you have a share in. It's not your own work that you have a share in. Right? It's the work of Jesus. We are passive shareholders. He's the active principal. He's the one who does the work. We, though, are rightfully and legally beneficiaries of the work that he has done. That's what the gospel declares. Jesus went to work on your behalf. There's a reason why, why Paul continually repeats over and over again the name of Christ in these verses. He continually uses the, the messianic title over and over again, ten times in the first, first ten verses. Five in the six verses that we, that we read this morning. But that's because this is the foundational thing to focus on. The, the confrontation of sin that, that is to follow in the rest of the, of the letter that he writes is not, is, not on, is, not, is not to focus on the sin itself, but it's to focus on the perfection of the Messiah, of the Christ. The Christ, the one, who, the one who lives a life of perfect obedience, who himself was blameless, but took the blame so that we could be blameless. Right? You talk about enriched, right? Paul, said, Paul says, you're enriched, we're enriched. You know how that happens? He tells, he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 8 or 9 that you're enriched only because Jesus became poor. Because out of his poverty, he, be, he made you rich. He gave up his riches so that you could be rich. That's how you're enriched. Right? You're appreciated. How are you appreciated? How are we appreciated? The only way that we're appreciated is because he was rejected. 
Because, because what he was worthy of receiving, the honor that he was worthy of receiving was not given to him. That's the only way that we're able to receive any honor and appreciation. Do you see how it works? He accepts the blame on our behalf and purchases our blamelessness so that we then are made stakeholders, shareholders in what he has done. Now, but what about the fairness? Okay, it's true. That's how, that's how we know it's true. How do we know? What, do we, what about the fairness? Because, I mean, fairness is important in this culture that we live in. We always want to be fair. We want to seem like things are fair. And, I mean, is it fair that the Corinthians can be forgiven despite all this stuff that they're doing? I mean, it, I, mean I can understand. I mean, if your sins are small. Right, first of all, talking like that, saying something like that, it, it shows a little bit of a, it shows a lot of, of, of lack of understanding in the true nature of what sin is and the real guilt that's associated with it. Because you're automatically kind of presuming that there is a difference in the, in the guilt that's associated with one form of rebellion against God versus another form of rebellion against God. All right, but more specifically to the, to the question of fairness, I want to see, this is a misunderstanding. It'd be, the, the question itself is a misunderstanding of fairness. Right? Because if, if that other person's blame if the, if the blame of the Corinthians, the debt of the Corinthians, has been paid for by Jesus himself, right, if he's paid for it, then how, in any sense, could it be fair to demand that it be paid for again? I mean, if it's been paid for, then it's not, it's not right it's to assert that it needs to be paid for again. It's already been paid for. In other words, it's not fair. What's not fair is to ask that a debt already been paid is to be paid again. So you see, it's true and it's fair. We're blameless. All right, so that's what Paul's doing. These are four, four things that Paul is saying here, and I think taken together, they form this foundation for the confrontation of sin in the life of a, of a Christian. And it highlights, I think, the difference in bringing our sin before God, and how bringing our sin before God is, is radically different and radically more effective, ultimately, than bringing our sin before uh, Dr. Switzer. Because you come into the office of, of Bob Newhart's Dr. Switzer, and what do you get? Right? You're a bother. I mean, that's essentially what he's communicating. I got five minutes for you in two words. You're a bother. You're useless. I mean, really, you're of no utility. Right? You're a client, and ultimately, you're the one who's going to earn the change. But you see how that's the exact opposite of what God is saying here. When you go to God, you are appreciated. Not in and of yourself, but on what's been done for you. But you, are, but you are appreciated. You are welcomed. You're gifted. You're enriched. On the basis of what Jesus has done, but you are enriched. You're a shareholder. You're a beneficiary of what God has done. And you are blameless in the sight of God. You're forgiven. Now, a few years ago, I, I was reading a, an article by the author and speaker Ken Sandy, and he was telling the story of his, um, his two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, two-and-a-half years old at the time, named Drew. And Drew, it seems, was walking in the backyard one day when he came upon a pile of fresh dog poop. I just said poop in a sermon. <laughs> Check that off the bucket list. Right. So, so he comes... He, now, when a two-and-a-half-year-old comes to a pile of fresh dog poop, there is this draw, this just, like, need to step in it and squish it around. And so that's what Drew does. Now, stop for a second and think of yourself. It's funny, uh, two-and-a-half-year-old. Think of it, though, right? This is what we do, even as Christians. 
we feel this incredible temptation to step into things that we know aren't right, maybe even things that we've been warned against, but there's just this draw to kind of step in it and squish it around a little bit. Now, Drew, the two-and-a-half-year-old, after doing this, after stepping, he immediately begins to realize the, the, what he's done because there's this horrible smell. Now, stop again. Why does the smell of such things bother a human being? It doesn't bother the fly. Flies don't have any problem with the smell. They're there all the time. They don't run away. They're there. They like it. Why does it bother a human being? Because a human being is a different creature. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's going to write to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, then he is a new creation. And what this means is that if you are a new creation with a new identity, then sin to you will stink. You will be aware of the smell. It will bother you. Even if at some moments you're drawn to it, when you step in it, you, you will notice, you will be aware, you won't like it. Now, so Drew then, back to the two-and-a-half-year-old, Drew then, not liking the stink that he has acquired, begins to try to rub it off in the grass. And that doesn't work, so he, so he gets up onto the patio and he starts kind of scraping along the patio. Now, he's not getting it off, but what he is doing is leaving a nice trail of footprints across the patio that is evidence now of the stink and a trail that leads directly to him. Now, stop again for a second. Ken, <laughs> Ken Sandy is watching this, through the, and it's uncertain to him whether, whether Drew is actually ever going to come for any kind of help or whether he's going to persist in this. So what Ken Sandy does is he goes to the door. Right? And this, this, this scraping, isn't that just like, isn't that just like kind of the, the Bob Newhart kind of approach? They're like, just, just stop it. Just get it off. I mean, it's like saying to a two-year-old, but you just get that off your shoe. Right? That's how we often approach trying to get things off of us, how to, how to eliminate the sin in, the, in, in our own life. It's, it's so attached to us. We just, I can just do this myself. I'll just, just, but it doesn't work. Ken Sandy goes to the door, he says, and he opens up the screen door. And as he opens the, the screen door, he sees two things. Well, one, he's confronted by the smell himself. But two, he sees little Drew look up at, at him and say, in this little tiny voice, Papa, clean me. And so Ken Sandy is not God, and so he admits his first inclination, his first impulse is to correct, right? is, to, is to give the lecture. So this is what you've done. This is why it's wrong. This is why you shouldn't have done it. But he, but he withholds himself, and, and, and he says, that, that conversation can wait. That application can wait. But let me, first, let me first do the principle. And so he kneels down, and he takes off the little boy's shoes, and he says, Papa will clean you, Drew. So with the help of a garden hose, he sprays off the shoes, and he cleans it off the shoes, and he sprays off the deck, and he removes the evidence and the trail that, that leads to him and to the guilt that was associated with what he had done. And when he finishes, Drew looks up at him and he softly looks at him. He says, I'm sorry for mess, Papa. Thank you, clean me. Do you see, this is what God, by faithfulness to his call, has done for us once and for all by uniting us in fellowship with Christ and making us a shareholder in his perfect, sin-free, stain-free righteousness in compassion 
God has knelt down and he has wiped away, washed away the stain with his own blood. Now, with the caveat that I made earlier, that there is a lot of application of these principles to specific situations that you might be dealing with, nonetheless, even with that caveat, if you are a Christian, here are the resources that you need to be able to eagerly anticipate the revelation of the Lord Jesus on that last day, when you will be finally perfect, journey complete, struggle over. And if you are not certain that you will be blameless in the sight of the Lord Jesus on that day. If you're not certain that you are a follower of Jesus, then I invite you to come to Jesus. Because I don't think that if you're here, if that's you and you're here this morning, I don't think you're here by any kind of accident. I think if you're here, there is every reason to believe and have confidence in the fact that, it's, that, that God is just like Ken Sandy, that your being here this morning is like that door opening Right? And, 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 and your role now, then, is to confess your desire to be clean. Ask him to do it, because he will do it. Papa will get you clean. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have given us what we don't deserve. You have promised to us what we can't even begin to ask for sometimes a hope that is not based on our faithfulness to you, but a hope that is based entirely on your faithfulness to you. Your promise to make us right because you have called us. God, I pray that we would rest on that truth, that as we think about the areas of our lives where we need to change, where there needs to be difference, where there is sin that we struggle with, Help us to avoid feeling superior to people like the Corinthians and help us avoid to feel on the other extreme despair. Help us to feel confidence that even in the midst of the struggle you have promised to be with us, that we can eagerly anticipate your return, that you have promised to keep us. And so we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close by singing hymn number 689.